We're in the uh, season, as Keith said, right at the start of the meeting, we're in the season that's known in the Christian calendar as Advent. And while Advent is often thought of as that season of the year preparing for Christmas, and hence we get all those nice little Advent calendars with their little windows that you can open and the little chocolates behind. Come on, who's got one? One or two of you owning up there. My kids were about 28 before they'd let us stop buying Advent calendars for us. And you know what they're like? You open those little windows, don't you? And there's such seasonal themes behind the windows as Wallace and Gromit and uh, occasionally even Madonna and Child as well. Uh, I went to the post office this week to buy a whole batch of stamps and uh, they said to me, uh, Wallace and Gromit or Madonna and Child? I couldn't decide, so I got half of each eventually. But That's the Wallace and Gromit advent calendar on the left. Well, advent, it was, um, it was set up originally in the church not to remember Jesus' first coming. It actually wasn't about advent, simply means coming. It wasn't about the coming of Jesus at Christmas originally. Originally, it was about preparing and thinking of the second coming of Jesus. It was originally about a time for preparing for his coming again, and then in the light of that, having spent a few weeks thinking about the coming again, going back to thinking, and yes, therefore we celebrate that first coming at Christmas time. So I suppose it pulls together the two themes of his first coming as saviour and his second coming as judge. And our theme today in this little mini-series on some of the titles of Jesus is a title that ties together perfectly those two ideas. His first coming as saviour and his second coming as judge. Uh, Our title for today that we're looking at is Jesus, the Son of Man. And it's probably one of those titles that's a little bit obscure to most people, and it holds those two themes that we've just talked about together perfectly. And that's perhaps why, when you read the Gospels, we find that it was Jesus' favourite title. It's the one he used of himself more than any other title in the Gospels. Funny, because it's not the one we would first think of. If I, if I said, throw me out some titles of Jesus, this would not be in the first three or four. I can guarantee it. And yet for him, it was his favorite title. Used more than any other. And here's the other interesting thing in the Gospels. It is only ever used by him, of him. Nobody else ever calls Jesus The Son of Man, it's only ever Jesus talking about himself. And nobody else uses this title of him. In fact, then when you go beyond the Gospels to the rest of the New Testament, there's only two people ever use this title in the whole of the New Testament. The first is Stephen in Acts chapter 7, just before he is stoned, just before he becomes the first martyr, and just before they throw those stones that they've been holding in their hands, waiting for an excuse to do it. In Acts 7, 56, we read, I 
I see heaven open, Stephen said, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The only other person who ever uses this in the New Testament, other than Jesus and that Stephen example, was John in his book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 1, he tells us that he was in exile on the island of Patmos, which was a Roman penal colony in quarries. So if you were there, you were a slave hacking away at the quarries. And there, in the heat of that day, John was no doubt chiseling away when suddenly he hears a voice behind him. And the last time he heard that voice was 30-odd years earlier. It was the voice of Jesus who spoke to him. Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I looked and there before me was... Uh, sorry, he saw in chapter 1, verse 13, someone like a son of man. And then later in chapter 14, he says, I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. The crown, the king, the sickle, the judge. So here's this slightly unusual title, one we don't, use a lot I suspect it's not one you find in your prayer times for example you know what's the most used title for Jesus when we're praying when we're praying Lord and Lord we ask Lord that Lord you come Lord and Lord we ask today Lord that Lord it's a sort of filling isn't it rather than a title Um, but it's because we believe it with all our hearts as well. The Son of Man wouldn't come very high up when you're doing your praying. It doesn't occur in many of our songs, does it? So, slightly obscure, and yet, by contrast, Jesus' favourite title. But used only by him, of him, and only two examples in the rest of the New Testament. The rest of the time, Jesus uses it. So what we're going to do, first of all, is we're going to have a number of readings this morning, some of which you'll recognize instantly. I've picked out some very well-known readings, but every single one of them are where Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. So out there somewhere should be ten readers who I would like to come now. That is, as in now. And I'd like you to line up, number one at this end... They should be numbered, yeah? yeah. And ten at this end, and if you're smart, you'll get yourself in the right order. And we've got a microphone somewhere, Keith. Where is it? Keith's got it. Okay, can you do that for me? Now, in the timing of this morning, I hadn't worked out for Graham not knowing where number four goes. Are we okay? (laughs) So it should be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. You'll recognise most of these readings straight away. Simply, they're quite short, they're not long ones, but all of them are about this Son of Man. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus stepped into a boat 
crossed over and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Matthew 13, 40 to 43. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Matthew 16, 13 to 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew sixteen twenty four to 28 Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew 19, verse 28 to 30. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or fields, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much as will inherit eternal life. For many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. 
Then the mother of James and John, the son of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? He asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? Oh yes, they replied, we are able. Jesus told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. But I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. My father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. Then the ten other disciples heard, when the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slaves. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 24, verse 36 to 44. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, He would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Matthew 26, 62-66. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Good, thank you all. Can you just give that to Keith? Don't apologize for lots of readings there. I think it's good to read the Bible. It's good to hear God's word. I just happened to choose them all from Matthew. 
just for simplicity there rather than jumping from one to another. But what you've seen there is a whole breadth of usage and this term coming up again and again in all sorts of different spheres. But we can break it up into three areas. There's normally three categories that New Testament scholars see these uh, titles as being used. The first is to do with the Son of Man's authority. That's like in the story of the paralyzed man, where Jesus meets this paralyzed man and he says to them, your sins are forgiven. And this causes huge furore with the religious leaders and they blasphemy, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus says to them, well guys, which is easier? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? What's the answer to that, by the way? Which is easiest? To say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. I know which I'd rather do. I'd rather say, if there was a paralyzed man in front of me, come on, get yourself in the story. You know, if there's a paralyzed man in front of me, which would I rather say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? Your sins are forgiven. I'd rather say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because nobody knows, do they? I can go away and look very holy and say, bless you, my son, and, and carry on. But if I say, get up and walk, and he doesn't, I'm looking an idiot. So Jesus says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk? It's obvious, your sins are forgiven. But so you know I'm saying that, and it's true... He then turns to this man. Which is easier to say your sons are forgiven or to say get up and work, walk so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, get up, take up your mat and go home. And he did. That's authority. Where this son of man figure, whoever he is, when he speaks... Things happen. And in the Gospels we find things like storms getting settled and food getting multiplied and the dead being brought back to life. When the Son of Man speaks his authoritative word. So if you were to analyse the Gospels, the first batch of sayings about Son of Man, they're all to do with, this is a man who's got authority. Now the second batch almost looks the exact opposite. Because the same batch, if you were to group them, are all to do with the son of man's servanthood and suffering. So in that passage that we read, where Jesus says, who do men say that the son of man is? Well, some of them are saying John the Baptist, and some of them are saying, one well, Elijah, come back from the dead. And Jesus says, what about you? Who do you think the son of man is? And Peter gets it. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, fantastic. Well done. I can build my church on confessions like that. But then he goes on to say that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That he must be killed and three days later rise again. Wow. This one looks a glorious and authoritative and powerful now. Does it all this talk about dying and and suffering and being rejected and that's when Peter said Lord, Lord this can't happen to you and Jesus said that delightful encouraging phrase get behind me Satan 
You're not thinking God's thoughts, you're thinking man's thoughts. In that story of James and John's mother that we read, uh, can my boys have the best seat in heaven? They're good boys. They looked after their mum when she was sick. She said, James, John, best seats. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, do you? It's not how it is in the kingdom of God. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. So we've got a whole bunch of sayings that are about his authority. And we've got a whole bunch of sayings that look like different. That's to do with servanthood and suffering and dying. That doesn't sound much like authority, does it? And then we've got a third group of sayings, which are all to do with something that ties both of those together. Which is the Son of Man's future glory. Jesus said again and again that a day is surely coming when he is going to come back to this earth. Not in the way that he came last time. So humble, so obscure, not known, not noticed, apart from by a few Day's coming when he's going to come back in power and glory, a very different way and a very different purpose. Like in that reading when he was on trial and the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus replied, you've said so, but I say to all of you, from now on you will see who? The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then in his teaching in Matthew 24 and 25, those chapters are packed with teaching about the need to be ready for the sure, certain, sudden and unexpected return of this Son of Man because it will lead to a time of separation between those who've trusted in him and those who haven't. So here's this somewhat mysterious title. I've taken some time to show you how it's at the heart of the New Testament. We don't use it a lot, but it's, it's right there in the heart of things, covering these three broad areas. So I want to ask us a couple of questions this morning. The first is, why did Jesus use it? And the second is, so what for us? Let's start with that first one. Why did Jesus use this title? Well, to answer that, we've got to go back to the Old Testament. Steve Jones, when he was preaching uh, a couple of weeks ago about uh, Jesus as the uh, King of Kings, Lord of Lords out of Revelation, said that to understand Revelation, you've got to go back to the Old Testament because all its keys and all its explaining notes are there. Actually, that's true of most of the New Testament. And to understand this title... We've got to go back to the Old Testament. Let's spend a few minutes just looking at that, then we'll look to apply it for ourselves. So why did he use this title? First of all, because of its background, where we find in the Old Testament this expression focused on two things. The first was frailty. Frailty. Not a word we use a lot these days, but it's a good word. Brittleness, tenderness, fragility. The frailty 
of the human condition. One of the things I've learned as a pastor for 30 or 5 years or whatever it is now is, do you know, you can't count on anything. Have you noticed that? Life suddenly changes. And when it changes, it doesn't send you warning notices. You know, when I was sitting on my aeroplane, enjoying my upgrade to business class, thinking, this, I like this, this is nice. Could do with a few more of these upgrades, Lord. This is really good. And got off the plane. And then they were saying, Michael Beaumont, Michael Beaumont. I thought, great, I'm being called to the front of the queue. That's really good. Yeah, I'll, I'll happily join you at the front of this enormous queue. And then suddenly this man says, can I have your passport, sir? And I, yeah, process me. And suddenly he says, would you come to the office with me? And at that point, my dream has just started to shatter. And nobody gave me notice, by the way, when you get to India, if you'd like to start preparing for it, you know, it's going to change. Life is fragile. It's no more fragile than at the point of death, which we all like to believe will be a long, long, long way away, especially when you're my age. But you know what? It might not be. Why? Because life is fragile. Can't count on... Anything, actually, of what might happen tomorrow. Life is fragile. Humanity is fragile in comparison to God, who is eternal, everlasting, unchanging. One of the places we find that, and that any Jew hearing what Jesus would have said would have been Psalm 8. It's a well-known psalm. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you've entertained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you cared for him. For you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, etc. There's an example in that verse there of what's called Hebrew parallelism. It was a poetic device. What they used to do in Hebrew is to really underline something, they would say something, then say it again, but in a slightly different way to emphasize it. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or to put it a different way, the son of man that you care for him. It's a synonym for man, but man in his frailty as the psalmist stands and looks at the heavens. Have you ever looked at the heavens at night and thought, God, we're small? You ever done that? And the more you look, the more you see, God, we're so small, so frail. And that's the first background to this idea. Son of man is a word for That which is small and frail and and insignificant in comparison to the vastness of all that there is. Same main place we find it in the Old Testament is in the book that we were looking at not that long ago. That's that book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is again and again called Son of Man. Checked up this week, just so you don't think I carry this sort of useless information in my head. It occurs 93 times in the book of Ezekiel. That probably suggests it's fairly important, doesn't it? When it comes up that often. 
93 times Ezekiel is called son of man. The first time we get it is in Ezekiel chapter 1. There's that fantastic vision of God that preached Keith on a a few months back, much of which I can still remember because it was good. And this vision of God's throne and its holiness. And then chapter 2, God speaks to him. Son of man, rise up on your feet and I will speak to you. Why? Because he'd seen God, seen how big God was and he just crawled down in a ball. So small, so insignificant, so frail. And God says, son of man. Yeah, that's who you are. A son of man, a son of humanity in comparison to the great God. So that's the first thing about its background. Speaks about frailty. That we are frankly nothing at one level in the vastness of this universe, and yet esteemed so highly by God, of course. Second key idea that comes out in the Old Testament is, once again, the opposite. Because in the Old Testament, we see this word as conveying not just frailty, but glory. Because there's one other place where any Jew hearing Jesus speak would have thought of straight away. It's from the book of Daniel. Daniel, a young man who had been taken into exile in Babylon when he's around 20 or so, something like that. But as a young man, taken into exile and his his future seemed to be finished. And while he is there in Babylon, God starts to stir up a gift, a spiritual gift in him of being able to interpret dreams. By the way, in passing, I hope we know that the spiritual gifts God gives us aren't just for church. They're for use in the world as well. Can anybody say amen? amen? Good. And this gift, actually, the first time we see him using it, it's in the world, not in the church, not with the people of God. And the king of Babylon has this dream and none of his holy men, religious men, can interpret it at all. In Daniel chapter 2, this dream of a statue with four different sections to it. And only Daniel can interpret it. And he says, King, these four bits of the statue, they're they're empires that exist or are to come. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. One's going to give way to the other. And then he sees this little stone tap the statue's toe and the whole thing goes, and collapses. And that little stone, the kingdom of God, grows and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and becomes the kingdom of God that fills the whole earth. Now in chapter 7, he himself has a dream with the same message. Actually, there's something really interesting. In the first half of Daniel, all Daniel does is interpret other people's dreams. And then from chapter 7 onwards, God starts to give him dreams. There's a good kingdom principle there in passing, that if you are faithful in serving others and their vision, the day will come when God will give you your own. And if you want to jump that first bit, God has a way of resisting you until you've learned how to serve. So he serves and he serves and he serves this pagan king but boldly, courageously declaring the word of God. He's not He's not going to hide. If you'd asked him to put his cross inside his lapel or not wear it to work, he wouldn't have done it. In chapter 7, he has this vision. 
And this time it's a vision of seven fearsome monsters. But they're saying the same thing, these four empires, each of which will give way to the next. But then something happens. I want to read to you from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 19. Because having seen this series of fearsome beasts, verse 9, as I looked, thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool and his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Oh, do you remember? Ezekiel saw wheels, didn't he? Must have wheels. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and the court was seated, and the books were opened. This is the throne room of heaven, the holy courtroom of heaven, and God is coming, and he's seated on his throne, and everyone's risen in his presence, and then they sat, and they're waiting to see what will happen. And then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. The horn was a a little horn that had grown out of the final of those great and fearsome beasts. And in the Old Testament, horn simply stands for something that is powerful. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, and he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him, His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. What Daniel saw there in that vision through faithfully serving others in their visions, God gave him a vision of nobody less than the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus coming into the presence of the Father as he has done throughout eternity, but especially will do again at the end of time. He sees now not the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, lying in a little crib, a manger, surrounded by straw and visitors upsetting his sleep. He sees Jesus as he truly is, as he truly always has been, as he truly always will be, Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords that Steve Jones spoke about, Jesus coming on the clouds of heaven at the end of human history to establish his kingdom, destroy all other kingdoms, and all that will be left are those who have put their trust in Christ as king. And he sees him. He sees this vision of glory. Just as Jesus spoke about in that reading we had 
When he answered Caiaphas about, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in glory. He was referring to this passage. Now, in the light of all that, and I'm sorry I've taken a bit of time to, well, I'm not sorry I've taken a bit of time to do that. I'm not sorry at all. Don't apologize. Rewind. I'm glad I did all that because it is really important background to why this is important. Why did Jesus use this background, this title? Because of its background and therefore because of its appropriateness. What an utterly appropriate title for Jesus. Appropriate because of who he was. The one who summed up in himself here on earth both frailty and glory at the same time. The one who, when he was little, needed those to love him, care for him, his mother to feed him, his father as he grew up to train him. He was frail, he was humble, he was dependent, and yet he was the one who had all glory. He was God become man, the one who'd laid down his power, authority, glory, and came humbly as a man, the one whose claims were vindicated by the cross. So it was really appropriate. Because Jesus was these two sides in one person. The one who was all glorious, who laid it down to become the all humble in order to take back the all glorious again. Having won salvation for us through his death on the cross. Third, he used it because of its helpfulness. One of the things that's clear in the New Testament again is that Jesus came as the Messiah. Messiah means, come on, someone tell me, what does Messiah mean? Anointed one. It's from a Hebrew word, Mashiach, anointed one. And in the Old Testament, you anointed kings and priests and sometimes prophets for their work. You would take a big jug of oil, pour it over them, Anoint them as a way of saying, as this oil flows over you, so may the Spirit of God flow over you to enable you to do this task to which he's called you. And as the Old Testament went on, there was an increasing expectation that one day there wouldn't just be lots of messiahs, but one day there would be the Messiah. There would be one who would be the ultimate prophet, priest, king he'd be everything that all of these aspired to be but never could be he would be the messiah the anointed one who would at last free God's people trouble is by New Testament times that word messiah had taken on a holy political flavor it was almost like you couldn't use it anymore without people thinking instantly of something else for example if I use the word gay you all know what the first thing is that you think of. When my three daughters start at school, when the first one started at school, a long time ago now, 25 years ago, when she started at school, her reading book, the series, you know, the little series that kids have at school, the reading book was called The Gay Way. When our next daughter started, three years after her, they'd had to change the title of the book. It was now called the new way. Why? Because the meaning of that word had utterly changed. Now that's a bit like this word. 
Messiah did mean deliverer, but the trouble is it had so become associated by Jesus' time with Messiah means someone who'll get a sword, get a horse, whop those Romans once and for all, cleanse the promised land, and set up the kingdom of God on earth. Nobody could think of that word Messiah as meaning anything other than a big guy with a big sword on a big horse and a big battle. But Jesus hadn't come with a sword, he'd come with a cross. And because this meaning of how he was going to do this salvation was so different to what everybody thought, he studiously avoids using the title Messiah. Doesn't really like, he'll acknowledge it if people call him it, but he himself doesn't embrace it. So instead, he takes this other title, Son of Man. Why? Because it's a little bit obscure. You're going to have to think a little bit about it. You're going to think, Son of Man, Son of Man. Who's the Son of Man? Where have we heard of the Son of Man before? Oh, hang on, Psalm 8. Oh, hang on, Daniel 7. And so he uses a title that can't be misunderstood and that he can fill with his own meaning. He studiously avoids that title. Funny thing is, it's a title that drops out of use fairly quickly in the early church. Um, Scholars think that happened simply because as the gospel moved into the Greek world, unless you understood the background from things like Psalm 8 and Ezekiel 2 and Daniel 7, it was a bit meaningless. And so they started to use other titles of Jesus that were more meaningful in their culture, which is why it's not used an awful lot by us today, even though it's central to the New Testament. So what? So what? That's a perhaps a nice little theological exercise we might be thinking. So what? Oh, so a lot. What does this title bring home to us about Jesus in this Advent season then? What it means is that our Jesus is the one, first of all, in whom there is both humanity and divinity. Our Jesus holds both in himself. The Bible tells us he freely chose to lay aside his God powers. There's no sort of, you know, like Superman sort of rips his shirt back and underneath he's Superman all along and he's just got those glasses on to fool you. Never, it's always troubled me how glasses can fool anybody. I put my glasses on, I'm still me. Look, who is he? Guess. Jesus is not, he's not sort of Superman. You know, like he's, he's put his Clark Kent outfit on to become human. But really, whenever there's anything like exciting needs doing, like people being healed or forgiven or storm stopping, what he does is... Dun, da, dun, da, 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 dun, da, dun. And then he says... Yeah, well, Lois... It's not like that. The Bible says that he freely chose to, as it were, we've got to look for some human language. Freeze all that stuff in heaven. Leave it behind. Paul says in Philippians 2, have this mind 
among yourselves which you have in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself of all that stuff. And he said, look after that for me, will you, Dad? I don't know how he did that, but if he's God, he can do it. And he puts his powers to one side. He is still God. He is still the Son of God who comes to this earth, is incarnate, but without Superman under his chest. But he is that God. But he does his God stuff, not by ripping back the shirt, but by calling on the Holy Spirit. By praying, by looking to his Father. In this Jesus, there is both humanity and divinity. So when he dies, it truly is God who died for us, which is why he could die, because he'd left the God power stuff in heaven. Second, it brings together humility and glory. This title's amazing. There's so much, and it's used in the Gospels where the Son of Man is humble where he comes to serve, where he comes to give his life as a ransom for many, where he comes to, not to be served, but to serve. He comes humbly. This is God coming humbly. Even so humble that he's given people the right to say, I don't want you. And he could go like that and change their mind. Humility, and yet on the other side, glory. Glory. Because the Son of Man is now seated in heaven and one day is returning on the clouds with all those who've died trusting in Christ, coming with him, and we're going to be caught up with him while he sorts all the mess out down here and renews his creation where we'll spend eternity with him forever. He is coming again. Humanity and divinity Humility and glory. Third, laying down his life, yet having the right to judge the lives of others. That's an amazing one. On the one hand, on the humanity, humility side, he lays down his life on that cross. Doesn't cling on to it. And yet this is the one who when he returns has the right to judge the lives of others. And the New Testament says we should be ready for that. Because on that day, there'll be no excuse notes will be accepted. You know, there's no notes from your mum that day. Dear Jesus, please excuse Johnny from believing in you because he wasn't very well that day no notes from your mum no excuses no no even well I tried to believe what determines our eternal destiny is did you put your trust in Jesus Christ the son of God who came and humbly died on the cross for you to wipe out your sins so you can come into the presence of the Father God without fear in the present or in the future. He did it for us. As Keith summed up earlier when we were praying, it cost us nothing, 
It cost him everything. Wow. What a son of man. What an amazing guy to hold these two sides together for us. So this is how we're going to end this morning. In a moment, we are going to pray. But I felt when I was preparing this week and when I was looking over it again this morning that uh, there are some that God wants to meet with as he has already been doing in our worship earlier. Um, But I felt like he wanted to meet with people in different ways. And it may be this morning that actually you you just need to reach out to the Jesus who is human. The Jesus who knows what it is to be tired, exhausted, weary, hungry, probably fed up. You know, that human stuff that doesn't go just because we're Christians. But the Bible tells us that we have a priest who is just like us. He understands us. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet never sinned. But he's being tempted in every way, understands us when we go through the hard times, the challenging times. So in a moment, when we pray, if this morning you need to say, Jesus, do you know what? I I just need to stand with you in your humanity. I just need to know that you are there with me going through this. That's all. I don't even need the fairy to wave the magic wand, which is sometimes what prayer becomes for us. I just need to know you're with me, Jesus, in this. What I want you to do is to come and stand at this side of the platform. And if this morning you're in a position where you you just need to see a divine breakthrough of power in some area, and you need to know the Son of Man in glory and in power this morning, just speaking a word like to that man and, and finding breakthrough, what I want you to do is to come and stand at this side. Just be careful of the overhead projector here because this one's been replaced and broken so we've just got one on the stand. So please just watch that. They're expensive. Son of man, Jesus, I just need to know (laughs) you're with me, you're standing with me in this hard time. Son of man, the glory side, the power side, I need a breakthrough, Jesus, here and I'm not seeing and I've been praying. Come and stand this side. And do you know what? If you've never met the Son of Man before in your life, if you've never ever known what it is to have Jesus come and live in your heart, God living in your heart, God forgiving your sins, and you come and stand at the middle. And I'll just get someone to talk with you and pray with you. Or even if you just think, I really want to know more this morning. I don't know if I'm ready to pray the prayer yet, but I've got to find out more. I'll find someone. Son of man, human, he stands with you. Son of man, glorious, he fights for you. Son of man, saviour, he died for you. Let's pray. And as we pray, I will not extend this. I'm going to give you an invitation now to come. Because, you know, a lot of prayer, it's not about getting folk to do the stuff for you. It is about you standing to say, God, this is my declaration before you. So if this morning you need to know Jesus, Son of Man, the human, standing with you, come over 
to my right, your left. Come now. And if you need to know Son of Man in power, come over to the other side. Or come to the middle. Just going to give 30 seconds max. And if there's no one, that's fine with me. I will just pray. But if you know you need the Son of Man to stand with you this morning, please come quickly, even as others are starting to do. If you need both, start with the Son of Man in his weakness. And then when we pray for that, rush over to this side. And then you can get both, okay? Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pray first for those who just need to know the Son of Man standing with them in their weakness at this time. Whatever it is, I don't need to know it, he knows it. So guys over here, I would like you to stretch out your hand of blessing towards these folk. Come on, you're going to pray with me. I'd love the rest of you, if you felt you could as well, to stretch out a hand of blessing to brothers and sisters. Lord Jesus, Jesus, Son of Man, Jesus, God, become man so humbly laying aside your power when you could have done it so easily. Coming and walking humbly and knowing the pressures of human life. This morning we pray for these brothers and sisters who by their coming forward make a declaration of faith that they need you. They're not even asking for a quick fix prayer, Jesus. They're just asking that you would be with them, that you would hold their hand, that you would wrap them around their heart, that you would assuage their fear and anxiety. Jesus, come, even now. We're praying this together. We're asking this together. Son of man, come and put an arm around them right now. And... Brothers and sisters, I want you to feel the squeeze of Jesus around your shoulder. <laughs> just, he's there, just giving you that, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. I know, and I'm with you. I'm with you, the Son of Man, so humble, so tender, and yet, who has the answers so powerful, is with you. You just keep receiving from him for a moment. Let's pray. Congregation, just stretch your hand out this side to these folk with me, will you? Thank you, Jesus. This is not a different Jesus we're talking about. It is the one, Son of God, eternal Son of God, come into this world. And Lord, we confess we don't always know why it is you don't answer prayers straight away, why we don't always see the miracle straight away, but we refuse to give in. And so, Jesus, we stand with these brothers and sisters this morning who need breakthrough, who need to see the Son of Man on the clouds with his scepter held out with authority, calling every principality, power, dominion to bow at his feet. And we declare that this morning. We say there is none greater than King Jesus. In that vision of Daniel, every statue crumbled, every beast cowered, 
as the King of Kings came upon the clouds. And we say, let that be in your lives, in your situation, in what you are facing, in work, in health, in family, in anxieties, whatever it might be, we say, we release the power of the Holy Spirit of King Jesus to bring you breakthrough even this week. Where you've been stuck, we pray for breakthrough. We know many of you have been praying for some of these things for ages. But we are standing with you this morning agreeing, let there be breakthrough for you in Jesus' name. Son of man, we bless you, we worship you, we thank you this morning. I find it amazing that you hold both sides in yourself. The tenderness, but the power. The humility, yet the glory. And I pray for all of us as we go into this week, may we know this Jesus with us. May we know the Son of Man at times tenderly walking with us, at times empowering us, but through all times, never, ever fearful or embarrassed to stand up for whom we know and what we have believed. Jesus, Son of Man, Son of Man, on this second Sunday of Advent, come to us again, we pray. Strengthen, fortify, encourage us, And help us to be your witnesses this week. And to be triumphant in whatever we face. In Jesus' name, we do pray this, Father. Amen.